Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. All right, today I'm going to talk about something that comes up a lot in my little world, certainly comes up over on Patreon, comes up just in classes I take, in conversations I have. I'm going to be talking about jackpots. So you know how I like to start? I like to start with definitions. Jackpot doesn't have a definition as far as dog training is concerned. The dictionary definition is a large cash prize usually accumulated until the win. So essentially, it's something that builds and builds and you have a payout at the end of whatever it is. I asked my community to weigh in on what they think jackpots in dog training are, because like I said, it doesn't have an agreed upon definition in our world. There were a lot of answers. I had 50 comments in the first 45 minutes (laughs) that the post was up and they're actually, they're still growing. So I pared them down, I read them all, and I think that there are kind of three bullet points that remained true through most of the definitions. And those are that a jackpot is the delivery of a higher value or higher quantity or longer duration of reward. So in some way, the magnitude of the reward was bigger than the other rewards present in the session, or perhaps then what was expected by the dog. Which leads me to a point that only a couple of people made, but that I think is really important, which is that a jackpot is a surprise. It is unexpected in some way. And then almost everybody also attached the thought of a jackpot to a party or some kind of burst of emotion from the person. No one, almost no one, mentioned a jackpot's effect on behavior. Now, I didn't specifically ask them to. I asked them what their definition of it was. But I did find it interesting that almost no one included this concept's effect on behavior or what the behavioral outcome is expected to be in their definition. So I thought that was interesting. Everybody's definition has one thing in common, which is true from the trainers who weighed in who don't use jackpots and true for the the trainers that weighed in who use them routinely. And that is that the jackpot is 
done in an effort to emphasize one response over the other. And again, outcome was not really discussed, but the hope was that you would be emphasizing some responses from your learner over other responses. So I'm going to give a couple of examples that I think are common and talk about them. So the first one is that in running dog walk training, which is the first place that I really learned of a procedure that intentionally utilized jackpots as part of the training procedure. In running dog walk training, it is common for you to give three different responses to the dog as they descend the plank. And if you're not an agility person, a running dog walk is essentially what we train the dog to do to hit that yellow zone at the end of the board that we call the contact zone that they have to hit in order to qualify or have a clean run. There's a variety of ways to teach them to hit the yellow zone and a running dog walk is the way that they they hit the yellow zone without stopping. So they move continually through that zone. It is a lot harder and a lot less accessible than it sounds. So generally speaking, people will give the dog one of three responses as they descend the plank. They will give a no reward response. So that's the dog didn't hit the yellow at all or didn't hit, um, didn't meet criteria at all. They might give a reward, which is kind of their status quo reinforcer for a hit that is less than perfect. So perhaps a high hit or a hit with only one foot. And then they will give a jackpot, which is meant to be a bigger, more powerful reinforcer. And it's not defined as such. I mean, I didn't, I didn't learn it as, and then you have to do this in order to make it a jackpot. I was taught, you know, look at the learner. What does the dog think is the best reinforcer? And then give that as your jackpot. If the dog hits with two feet, preferably two back feet um, and deep in the yellow. So that's one example. My process with that procedure, um, as I've gone through it with a couple of dogs, really namely one dog, is really a story for another day because it's another podcast entirely and there's a lot in there that doesn't have to do with jackpots. So that's a really common procedure in dog training. I also got the example actually in my Facebook post that got um, these responses about jackpots of using a jackpot for just an exceptionally good performance. So perhaps the dog healed with extra heads up and didn't look away once and maybe had the correct gait and then you will give a lot of food rather than just one piece of food um, at the end. Or maybe for a really good recall, you give the dog several pieces of food in a row rather than one. The way that people deliver jackpots predictably varied a lot. Some people would drop a ton of food on the ground. Some people would let the dog go into the bait bag themselves. Some people would feed more, feed better, feed for longer periods of time. In the running dog walk example, a lot of people used food versus toy as their situation. So they might give a piece of food for a reward for those kind of higher hits and then throw a toy for the jackpot for those deeper hits. Another common example that came up is in shaping. So essentially a lot of people weighed in and said, and I observe this when I teach my shaping class, that they get the jackpot when the dog kind of meets a milestone approximation. So if they're trying to get to an approximation in their session and they're not really reaching it and they keep reaching for it and keep reaching for it and the dog finally hits that milestone approximation, they will put a lot of emotion into it and give the dog a lot of food. So give the dog a jackpot for doing so. So these are examples of jackpotting. And there are a lot 
of problems with all of these examples and most of the examples that come up when we talk about jackpotting. So let's talk about what they are. And then I'll talk about maybe how to do it right and maybe what jackpots are worth. So if you love jackpots and you just don't wanna hear me rip on them, don't leave because there's, there's a lot more to say. Here's one problem. When you put a big amount of emotion on a certain response, so when you kind of freak out, you certainly do mark for the dog that something is different here, but you may not have the positive effect that you want. A lot of dogs are negatively affected by your big burst of emotion and you may miss that because you're so excited and throwing food. You may actually derail your session and that's with or without the emotion. So the emotion itself could derail your session, but delivering a ton of food or a different reinforcer than what is expected could derail the session in such a way that you can't get it back on track. It can serve simply as a distraction. So if the dog whether the dog knows a jackpot is coming or doesn't know that the jackpot is coming, delivering that jackpot can again cause that kind of mental shift over to something else. So kind of cause the dog's attention to go to a different place and again, derail your session. Another huge problem that I see is that the jackpot is not easily perceived by the dog. So I call that clunkiness. So I just say that it's a clunky thing that almost feels like an accident to everybody involved and the dog may not understand why it happened, why it happened when, they just may not attach it to their behavior successfully because it's clunkier than a streamlined click treat. Okay, so a marker that is immediately followed by a reinforcer is streamlined and clean. Whereas screaming and reaching for the thing that you didn't have your hand on before because it's not what you were using and then finally bringing it out and throwing it like Mardi Gras beads, that's clunky. And the dog may not attach it to the behavior that you were trying to attach it to. On that same note, it can actually just slow you down. So if I have um, an agenda behavior and I'm gonna allocate, let's say 20 treats to said agenda behavior, I am wiser to spend those 20, those 20 treats clicking and treating 20 approximations that are correct then clicking and treating 10 approximations that are correct and then giving another 10 treats for a great approximation. So if I am only going to use, you know, we're all only going to use so many treats in a day, right? We're all only going to give so much food. And maybe in the case of a smaller dog, you only have so much stomach space <laughs> to give, to give that food to. You are wisest to use each reinforcer to reinforce an approximation because each of those times you're putting that money in the bank. Whereas if you, like I said, click and treat 10 reps and then click and give 10 treats for one rep, you only got 11 reps. You only paid 11 reps versus the other session or the other trainer, you paid 20 reps. And so you are ahead of the game. I hope that makes sense. And then finally, last but honestly not least, is there is the strong possibility of disappointment because dogs 
all, all of them, as well as all people, have kind of a hierarchy of preference for reinforcers. This is especially common if you're using toy versus food reinforcers. So in the case of the running dog walk, let's say you're going to click and give a piece of cheese for a high hit or a one foot hit, but you're going to mark and throw a toy for a jackpot type hit, a deeper or two foot hit. If your dog is like mine and thinks the toy is life and death and thinks food is you know, delicious, wonderful, will work for, but not life and death, then you may be weaving feelings of yuckiness, feelings of disappointment into your session each time you give that food. In which case, are you actually punishing the reps that get food with your food and not actually reinforcing any of those reps the way that you want to be? You're running a fine line there. It is very, very possible for you uh, to be doing that. So let's get into how I think we can think about this a little bit differently to do it right, to make it work for us. And I will say that there is a tiny bit of research on this, um, and I will link to one study in which jackpots were kind of looked at two different ways. And I understand that a trainer in a lab type setting uh, with their dog, a laboratory type setting with a dog is different than you and your dog on your training field. But the data is interesting and it kind of speaks for itself. Uh, the data demonstrated that in one scenario, they were going to give kind of a random big reward. So a higher magnitude reward for one behavior. So one behavior was being paid. And at a point, they paid that behavior really big to see if the rate of that behavior would increase or not. In that scenario there was no effect on behavior, no lasting effect. So at just that kind of seemingly to the dog random jackpot did not have an effect on behavior. And that is how a lot of us are training. We're after one thing and we give a big jackpot for that, that milestone approximation. That is similar to this scenario. The other scenario, there were two different behaviors and they were basically paying one behavior with the high magnitude reinforcer and the other behavior with the normal reinforcer. And in that scenario, they did see the one the behavior that was being paid with the jackpot increase. And that makes sense to me. And that feels like um, a little procedure that I like to call never wrong, sometimes more right. Never wrong, sometimes more right goes like this. I'm going to reinforce every single approximation of my agenda behavior that I see the dog give me. And I'm going to reinforce the, the higher rung approximations bigger. So with a better reinforcer. I never refer to this as a jackpot, but it feels like it is a, a kind of jackpotting because it is essentially delivering a higher magnitude reinforcer for certain behaviors. So yes, I think in some ways we could, we could call it a jackpot type of procedure. It's important to me that the human does not change response to response in Never Wrong, Sometimes More Right. I do not want the person praising big or going crazy when they give that higher value food. I just want you to allow the reinforcer to speak for itself. And why? Because I think that your, your praise and your craziness and your party usually distracts from the actual task at hand more than anything. And I will come back to, um, to that in a little bit. So that's a never wrong, sometimes more right procedure, which I will choose 
usually for dogs who don't trust the training process because their trainer is also learning and they don't have the temperament to kind of hang in there with um, some course training skills. So that's usually when I use never wrong, sometimes more right. But I've had, I've had a friend use it to actually diminish vocalization during healing. She paid for all healing that would, that met healing criteria, but she paid quiet healing bigger and better. So with a bigger magnitude reinforcer, and it was really effective for her. The other thing that I think that came up from a couple of really smart trainers that I really admire um, in the Facebook discussion is the potential for this jackpot to actually have an effect on life behaviors. So kind of behaviors that happen at random. So behaviors that you might be trying to capture more than behaviors you're trying to shape. So essentially they're already there. You want to catch them and make them happen more often by delivering a jackpot kind of as a surprise. So one thing that has um, held true for me, and I do recall learning about a study that demonstrated this, and I will try to find it for you all, but no promises, um, is that when a jackpot is a surprise, it is more effective. So if something happens to you when you're doing something and you didn't expect that thing to happen, it's going to pack a big punch in your memory versus if I'm running my dog walk and I know sometimes I get the ball and sometimes I get the cheese, neither one is a surprise. So surprise really matters. And if you can use the element of surprise to your advantage, you should. The other thing that matters, which is why I think surprise matters so much, is that novelty tends to be reinforcing to our kind of enrichment-seeking intelligent animals that we're training. And this brings me to my recall training protocol. In recalls, I use what I'm going to call a reinforcement hierarchy. And I'm going to use my kind of medium value reinforcer anytime the dog checks in with me on a hike. So if the dog comes back to me and acknowledges my existence in the world, I give them a little bite of kibble. Do I do that every time? It very much depends on the dog and the behaviors that I'm seeing. If they don't check in super often, you bet it, I'm absolutely doing it every time. If they have big radius, I'm doing it every time. If they're the kind of dog that's just going to fall into heel position and never leave me because I'm doing it every time, then no. Um, And this is cliff notes on my recalls. I've talked about them at length before. The next one is I'm going to use a high value reinforcer anytime I actually call you, which is going to be rare. So I'm going to recall you sometimes and you're going to get a high value reinforcer for that. That might be, if I'm using kibble as my kind of medium value, then that might be a piece of cheese. Um, Or it might be a, you know, cut up dog meat roll like Happy Howies or something like that. And then I also like to have a surprise reinforcer in my back pocket. I typically bring that surprise reinforcer on every single hike and almost never use it because what that surprise reinforcer is for is for a recall that was exceptionally difficult. And it almost never happens, which is another important part of recall training, but I I digress. (laughs) Um, I want that dog to recognize that the level of effort required is going to be directly comparable to the level of reinforcer they will receive. They only learn this through repetition. They only learn this over time. But because the rewards that I'm using are surprising and really, really good, they remember it just after a few reps. 
So what that looks like is I'm on a hike, everything's going great, I've maybe called them a couple times for happy howies, they're checking in, they're getting kibble, and then two deer walk out of the bush in front of us. And I call my dogs. And they recall off the deer as the deer head back into the woods. And then I whip out that surprise, awesome reinforcer. I also do it if they have to recall off of dogs, if they happen to be really into dogs. Um, For Rhea, recalling off of horses always gets this surprise reinforcer, this jackpot reinforcer. And this is effective for me. This has been effective for me for a long time. I am really careful about it and really strategic about it. And I think that's why it's so effective. And I am talking a huge difference in the reinforcer. So right now I have a hunk of feta cheese sitting in my freezer that I just grab and stick in my back pocket when I go on a hike. I haven't used it yet, but when I do, it's going to be big. Dogs are going to really enjoy it. So I make sure that it packs a punch. I make sure that it's something that they really, really are going to enjoy. Another way to do that, so kind of another way to use that hierarchy of reinforcers to your advantage, which again, I don't love calling jackpotting. I would say using that surprise reinforcer on a hike is a jackpot. This next example to me is more like, is more just recognizing your hierarchy of reinforcers, is that it recently occurred to me to feed my dog Felix a very high value food treat for stationing during his agility lessons and a low to medium value food treat for the actual agility. Because the actual agility is very fun and reinforcing in and of itself and the station is what's hard. So again, it's about ratio of effort to ratio of reward, which some great trainers talked about over in that thread. So I can feed him, like I'll keep a bag of something really good, like fresh pet or cheese or something like that by the station that I give him for being on the station. And then when I release him to work, he's just working for kibble. So to kind of conclude, (laughs) um, I don't think jackpotting is worthwhile in the shaping of behaviors in during that kind of shaping procedure or even during your procedure for prepping for the ring or anything like that. I do think being strategic about your hierarchy of reinforcement and being very aware of your ratio of effort to reinforcement are extremely important. And I do think that surprise rewards, which we can call jackpots, are really valuable for behaviors that happen out in life and don't happen very often. Because again, if you're giving a surprise reinforcer all the time, it ceases to be a surprise. It loses its effectiveness. You know, I would love to change all the dog training so that you're more, honestly, more of a machine, more able to deliver reinforcers on a really predictable level, kind of like um, all the dogs love the manners minder because the manners minder is a food machine. Be a food machine. However... I'm human, and when I get really excited about something, I definitely squeal and throw food. (laughs) And it's okay for you also to be human and squeal and throw food when something happens. What I think is important here is that we recognize that by doing so, we are unlikely to have a positive impact on future outcomes. It's just acknowledging that it's okay to have a party with your dog because you're excited and you love your dog. And those things matter just as much as if not, if not more than the outcomes. But when we're making our actual training procedure, we probably shouldn't be including those things in the procedure unless it is about hierarchy or about ratio and 
and directly relating to what it is we are trying to teach. Okay, and a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Rebecca, and I'm paraphrasing Rebecca's question. My dog eats grass whenever she slows down on decompression walks, usually when it's hot out, and it's always hot out where Rebecca lives, and she avoids water, so it's hard to solve this from a hydration standpoint. So the theory is that the dog is doing it to cool down somehow because it is worse when it is hot. And I'm not sure that we can go with that theory unless you offer the dog water or offer the dog other cooling mechanisms during the walk. So I believe that, you know, if it is happening more when it's hot, to my knowledge, dogs don't eat grass to hydrate. I, of course, cannot say that that's true or not true. And if anybody is aware of any information that I'm not aware of in this regard, please let me know. Is it possible that the dog is thirsty and therefore eating grass? I think you can only know the answer to that if you are offering water very, very frequently and see if she drinks it and see if eating the grass goes down when there's a lot of water on board. You might also bring more attractive water like coconut water or broth or something like that that she might be more interested in drinking than water and again, see if the grass eating goes down. But I would also be inclined to kind of redirect this behavior to a different sort of foraging behavior. So I would be either going out where you're walking before you walk her or just kind of doing this as you go along, scattering kibble in the grass. And I would also scatter ice cubes in the grass because if this is a cooling mechanism, then eating ice cubes will be an attractive option to the dog. And just see if you can help her to eat something that is not grass. And a little bit of grass, isn't a big deal. I don't worry too much about my dogs eating grass. Yes, if they're guzzling it and they're eating a ton of it, um, they may throw up, they may get sick in your car, so you do want to sort of redirect. If the behavior is severe enough, a basket muzzle will help the dog to not be able to eat as much grass, but I hope it's not that severe. So try a couple of those options, Rebecca, and keep us posted. Okay, next one is from Yasmin. Yasmin writes, my house shares a fence on two sides with neighbors whose dogs unfortunately have nothing better to do than bark and run along the fence lines. I've been there, Yasmin. I'm now seeing my five-month-old Stebehun puppy start to do these behaviors along with them. When this happens, I pick her up and bring her inside. Recalling her off this would not be successful, but she's completely lost control by this point and is fired up and frantic to get back outside. Any ideas on how to handle this? Fena, my pup, gets plenty of mental and physical exercise and is generally an easy puppy, but I'm afraid she's picking up some bad habits. So unfortunately, yeah, your dog is picking up bad habits and this will not be an easy fix for you. And it's also going to be deeper ingrained every single time it happens. And your puppy is super young and this could escalate into behaviors that you don't like. So number one, it can't be allowed to happen anymore. That means that if the neighbor dogs are out, your dog is not out. It probably also means having a conversation with your neighbors, getting them to text you maybe if they're gonna put their dogs out or asking them to take a peek and if they see your dog out to wait before they put their dogs out and maybe send a text over that says, hey, I need to get my dogs out. Have a little bit of communication. It's not gonna be perfect, but hopefully you have that kind of communication with them. And maybe you don't. And if you don't, then you are left to work with it on your own and you cannot train the neighbor's dogs. That's not gonna happen for you. So better visual barriers, putting up a different kind of fencing helps. But also 
essentially, besides avoiding it, I would be training a really rock solid head back to the house cue. I usually use some kind of bell for this. Um, so I used to call it the cowbell routine when I taught it to people in their homes. You're gonna ring that bell when the dog is outside and nothing is going on. And then you're going to run into the house and in the house there's going to be the best treat ever. So I used to use what I call cracked chicken for this. And it's basically chicken that I boiled in sweetened water. So I usually sweeten the water with honey and then I boil the chicken in that sweetened water and that chicken tends to be very, very attractive to dogs. So I would ring the bell produce the cracked chicken and I wouldn't use that chicken any other time. And of course, you know, fill in the blank, really high value reinforcer that you can use. Teach her that when she hears that bell, that amazing treat is available for her in the house so that you have a better and better chance of calling her off of that fence. If you can't communicate with the neighbors, you're going to need to go out with her on a long line. She cannot have free access to the yard anymore. And if the neighbor dogs do come out, you're gonna ring your bell and run for the house. And you may be dragging her along on that line, kicking and screaming, but you're still gonna produce that great chicken in the house. Essentially what's happening is the scales are tipping towards her wanting to, to do this fence fighting behavior with the other dogs. And you need to tip that scale towards running in the house with you. And that's only gonna happen if you cut off the running along the fence with dogs behavior and increase the other behavior. I basically wouldn't be putting her out there at all um, unless you have her on leash, you're fully supervising and you can stop that behavior from happening. And then you're in it for the long haul. It's going to take a long time because she's already learned that it's a really um, arousing, exciting thing. And I'd be very careful to make sure that she's practicing a lot of calm behaviors around other dogs. So I'd get her enrolled in a class where there's no free play and you're all just doing obedience behaviors near each other. I'd be taking her on walks with super calm adult dogs off leash and on. Really again, tipping the scales in your favor. It's a terrible situation to be in, so best of luck. Next one comes from Jessica Heckman, who's writing about her border collie who is three years old and adopted from a shelter. They're struggling with behavior around the back door to the backyard. She writes, I'd like to open the door and let my other dogs out to pee. He would like to rush out before them and keep them in the house. I've tried letting them out first. Then he rushes them and muzzle punches. Treat scatters helped for a while, but then he started having, let's call it uh, breakthrough arousal. Currently, they go out separately, but he gets very highly aroused when they go out with running and barking. I've tried keeping him in a separate room, but he figures out what's going on. I keep him on leash for this and try to do pattern games and like that, but he is getting more aroused, not less, over time. I also do mat work to help him learn just to relax around the door, but I'm not sure this is helping either. I know this is typical border collie behavior, but I can't seem to find a resource for how to solve it. Calm stationing feels so far beyond us right now. Um, Jessica later wrote that my answer about the dog with water obsessions, that was in another Patreon questions um, piece on an episode, was helpful. She says, I'm doing desensitization work, but it's hard when I have to let the other dogs out multiple times a day. So he keeps getting exposed to the stimulus. It's getting comical with us trying to get him into another room before there are any cues at all about our plans to open the door. And now going into that room at that time of night is the cue. Oh yeah, border collies. Um, they're a real peach, real delight to live with. If you are getting a border collie, 
if you're an aspiring border collie person, maybe you have a baby border collie, hear me loud and clear. They love shit like this. They love to pick up the precursor events to high arousal events. And they also love to control everything, right? So they, yeah, he wants to keep the dogs in the house or he'd like to move the dogs out into the yard and chase them. I mean, he has decided this is a really good time. And it is not going to be easy for you to fix. It is not going to be fast. You're being smart to manage it. But I would also have everybody go on a backdoor diet while you're managing it. I know you have other doors in your house. Dogs should be escorted calmly on leash through those doors and then transplanted to the backyard. That's not just your border collie, but your other dogs as well. So the backdoor ceases to be so exciting. Desensitization work is also going to be important. So just basically walk by, open the door, close it, move on, keep going about your day. He might go apeshit barking <laughs> and you just ignore him and close the door and go about your day. And you're just kind of, you touch the door, you open the door, you do all kinds of things with the door and they never lead to excitement. He's never going to forget this. So this is going to take pretty constant work throughout his life to manage. I do like stationing and stimulus control around these types of situations. So stationing the dogs and releasing them by name through the door. And that way you're releasing him last when the other dogs are in the yard. I also love to do a big scatter of food in the yard. So you're releasing the older, calmer dogs out first. They're now snuffling. Then you release your border collie. And he's like, oh, wait, there's no party. There's not action out here. So that you're just tipping the scales, like I said for the last question, towards the behaviors that you like. Next one's from Connor. They write, can you share ways you've helped clients find areas for decompression or remedial socialization hikes? I found my perfect spot by pinning any unnamed green area on my Maps app and driving around to see which spots were quiet and not private property. But it did take about a year and a half. Yeah, it can be really tough and it depends on where you live. So Sniff Spot is obviously a really good option. That's the app uh, Sniff Spot that allows you to find places that are actually for rent for walking dogs. I walk my dogs in a on a Christmas tree farm that's open to the public. That's definitely not a normal usual thing that's that's everywhere where i live logging areas so logging roads when they're not in use are open to the public to walk on and that can be really helpful but i have done the same thing you've done connor just look at a big unnamed green area go there scope it out check it out if you are concerned about the legality of that then that option's not for you and you want to go maybe more with a sniff spot situation or you know i'm a huge fan of Find a place, it looks like it's a decent place, find out who owns it, ask the person who owns it. You might be surprised. It is not easy to do. We have less and less accessible um, nature space for humans to use with their dogs. And depending on where you are in the country, there may be none um, or there may be a ton and you have to just kind of feel it out. Okay, next one is from Patricia and I'm going to condense this. Patricia mentions that she's taking an online engagement course, and I'm not going to go into the details about that course. Patricia's essential question is, how do I begin and also end sessions? So it's kind of started with asking how I end sessions um, and then flooded into how do I begin them as well? So I do think it's important to have a clear end of session signal that you give the dog especially if the dog really, really cares about the session. Do not kid yourself. That signal will become a conditioned punisher. The dog will not like to hear it. So 
I like to give them a consolation prize. I'll say, all done, do a big scatter, um, and then we will just head back in the house. If I was using a toy, I let the dog lay down with it and chomp it a little bit, or we might go inside with the toy. That's not right for you if your dog's toy interest is not super high. And, you know, that's generally it. I train kind of as long as I wanted to train, as long as I still have a dog. I never keep training if I lose my dog. I never keep training if things are really going poorly. I don't find a problem deciding when to stop because I never plan to train for a really long time. I think people who train for like 30, 45 minutes straight are just a different breed than I am. I have a lot of dogs to train. I go out, I maybe spend... If I spend 20 minutes on one dog, that's a long session for that dog. And my Border Collies are certainly capable of it, especially Felix. He's my young kind of middle-aged dog. He's six and he could train for two hours, honestly, but I don't have two hours to train him, so we don't. If my dog is disengaging or quitting or checking out, absolutely I stop. That's certainly a time to stop. I don't want to punish that response intentionally. I may be by stopping the training, but that's not really the plan or... You, you know, really the plan is go to the drawing board and say, why did the dog stop? Um, review the video, take some notes. When the dog is asking to train, you can really create a monster there. So you need to pay attention to the dog that you have. If I trained my dogs every single time they bothered me, they'd never leave me alone. But there's a lot of dogs like in my hidden potential course that if they're bothering you to train, I want you to reinforce that with training. <laughs> so it can be sort of a, it's, it's a tough thing. You need to look at the dog that you have and also look at you and your time and decide what works for both of you. Okay, and the last one for this week comes from Kristen. And I'm not sure that I have any answers for Kristen, but um, luckily she's not really asking for answers. She says, this is a conversation starter. What can dog enthusiasts do to help minimize the impact that having dogs, especially sport dogs, has on our ever-changing environment and climate? How can we as a group both promote the health and well-being of our dogs while avoiding additional exploitation of our planet's resources? I've been struggling quite a bit with this given the extreme changes in weather in the region of the U.S. that I reside in, the Pacific Northwest, which is where I am as well. Big question, Kristen. Really, really big question, really big topic that we probably all need to be thinking about. I think um, one of the biggest things we could probably do is compete locally more often. So compete locally more than driving long distances to compete. Utilize online classes rather than driving long distances to classes. But basically staying out of our cars and off of airplanes <laughs> as much as possible is, is a good idea. And that you're that's coming from somebody who's routinely driven clear across the country to compete with my dogs. And that's not necessarily something I'm gonna stop doing, but I may minimize other trips that I do to try to offset, offset those things. It's also, what we feed our dogs is also a really big deal. So the impact that the meat industries has on climate is enormous and usually understated. Usually we're talking about transportation more, um, but we need to be talking about the meat industries. I do feed my dogs a raw meat-based diet, and if, if I were feeding them kibble, I'd still be feeding them a meat-based diet, so I don't see that as being that different. Oh, but it's a big question, and I, I don't really have the answers. I do hope that as we go, more and more sustainable food options are available. I do try to feed them, you know, I feed them like a locally sourced food, for instance. Um, it's made in Seattle and then it's shipped to my door, which is not, not very far. 
you know, things like that. So I think minimizing our travel, really taking a look at the food that we're feeding, as well as maybe how many dogs that we have, the more we have, probably the bigger the footprint, again, coming from a person who lives in a household of eight dogs. And furthermore, though, the climate experts are saying, um, and this is not to make anybody feel bad or for any of their choices, but the climate experts are saying that the biggest impact that any individual can have, because at its core, this is a problem that lands on the shoulders of the corporations that are doing the majority of the polluting and the majority of the problematic lobbying, um, not on individuals. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel responsible, but any one individual, the biggest impact that we can make is actually choosing not to have a child. And again, I am not telling anybody to make that choice or not make that choice. That's totally individual, but I do feel pretty good about having three dogs and no kids when I hear that. So thanks for your Chris thanks for your question, Kristen. And that's it for this week. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dog Arena and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.